BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Friday, July 6th, 2018, and you're listening to Up to Date. I'm Indre Viscontis. I'm Kishore Hari. Happy Scott Pruitt got fired yesterday. <laughs> yes. yes, that does seem big news. I mean, you know, we've been hearing all about his egregious behavior for weeks, and it didn't, you know, it didn't occur to me that that might actually lead to his firing, given that it's not like it's new news. Well, let, let's, I think we should pump the brakes on celebrating. Now, I will say, and pardon me for editorializing for a second, Scott Pruitt was the worst. And I say that, forget about the science for a second. He was embroiled in 19 separate investigations into ethics violations. Even if you're a fan of the policy work he was doing, he was bringing a lot of shame and general sense of corruption to an administration that needs no more scandals at this point. So at best, he was a distraction. At worst, he was one of the most corrupt officials we've seen in years. Well, to celebrate his departure, I actually have a story that in part uses data collected by the EPA. (laughs) Well, before that, we should say one thing. Just because Scott Pruitt got fired doesn't mean that all's well in the world. His replacement, Andrew Wheeler, is a coal lobbyist. So don't expect much policy to change over time. I would say the only real benefit we're going to see in the short term is the fact that morale at the EPA won't crater from, you know, where it is at all time lows, that we may be able to keep some longtime EPA scientists on board for a while longer as just sort of the tone and tenor of the organization calms down. But we aren't reentering Paris anytime soon. Now you have a pollution study? (laughs) Yes, which of course makes the coal mining leader (laughs) um, even more interesting. Uh, This might be the last time we can use EPA data to uh, find a link between pollution and something bad for humanity. But, you know, we all know that pollution can cause lung problems and asthma in children and all these kind of bad things. But did you know that it might also cause diabetes? How would it cause diabetes? That seems like a weird link because... Uh, or are we talking type 2 diabetes? Type 2 diabetes, but still. Yeah, yeah, which is weird because still we're weird, still right? talking about a hormone imbalance in a lot of ways. Yeah, so I actually thought when I first you know, read about the study that this was just going to be, oh, you know, if you live in a polluted place, you just don't spend a lot of time outside. So, you know, really the mechanism by which you can drive the um, increase in incidence in type 2 diabetes is by not exercising as much, not spending as much time outdoors. Um, but in fact, there's a different mechanism that the authors of the study are proposing. So this is a study that came out in the Lancet Planetary Health interestingly enough. (laughs) And it looked at a huge data set of 1.7 million vets uh, from the US. And they followed them longitudinally for about nine years. So, you know, for a long time, there's been this like, you know, finding of a link between areas that have more pollution and the incidence of type 2 diabetes. But, you know, really to do a longitudinal study is hard and takes a lot of money and effort. Um, So this was a collaboration between the EPA and NASA, maybe the last one for a while. (laughs) But they all also looked at um, international 
national research on diabetes, um, including uh, a, 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 a large cohort in India and so forth. And what they found was that, in fact, there is this link between diabetes and uh, air pollution. Um, that this was the largest study of its kind to show that link. And it also quantifies, which I thought was really cool, exactly how many cases of type 2 diabetes in the world are actually directly attributable to air pollution. And in, in 2016, that number was 14%. That's an enormous percentage. Yeah. So Wait, in, in the U.S. alone, that's 150,000 people. Did they control for factors like most of the, the kind of air pollution you're talking about happens in poor neighborhoods? And mm -hmm. so did they control for, you know, diet and weight, which, you know, you expect to which we know to be huge risk factors for type 2 diabetes? Yeah, they did control for a number of these factors. And what's interesting to me when you read deep down in the study is the mechanism by which this might happen. So like, again, you might think that they're just, you know, low income people live in areas where there may be more pollution and maybe they don't spend as much time outside, et cetera. But it turns out that there is a particular particulate in the air that seems to be the one driving the risk. And the EPA's threshold for this particulate matter is about um, 12 micrograms uh, per cubic meter of air. But in this study, they say that the risk of diabetes increases with only 2.4 micrograms per cubic meter. And if you were exposed to 5 to 10 micrograms, remember, this is still below the threshold of the EPA, um, about 21% of the people developed diabetes. And at the safe levels, that leads to 24% uh, of people developing diabetes. But to me, the cool thing about um, the risk factors, it doesn't matter if the person is obese, which is a major risk factor. So this is this is outside of whether the person um, is, is obese. And instead, what happens is that this particulate matter is so small, it can penetrate the lungs and enter the bloodstream where it can cause inflammation. Oh, you're talking and about PM 2.5 then. Yes. Which is like commonly considered one of the worst, uh, worst particulate matters out there just because of the size. It's why we have spare the air days. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And and to me, this was like the, the key point is that 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 the inflammation that, you know, ingesting this substance causes can cause insulin resistance. And eventually this becomes severe. So the pancreas can't, you know, make enough insulin to compensate what and so you get diabetes. What a strange effect because we we have associated that particular man, uh, particular material to damage the lungs for a long time. Mm -hmm. And damage the lungs obviously leads to like greater inflammation so you have greater incidence of like stuff like heart disease. But we don't necessarily associate that kind of inflammation risk to something like type 2 diabetes. Yeah. So this is a, a totally fascinating finding that that is uh, perpetuating down to towards the the pancreas in that way. Yeah. So, do you think uh, uh, Wheeler is going to now decrease the threshold for safe? <laughs> no. I mean, you know, so the funny thing about this is that it's in what we're talking about is invisible, and the effects like linger in the community for a long period of time. So, we've known for a long time that coal, like if you live near a coal fired power plant, your risk of asthma goes up like somewhere between somewhere around like twenty percent because of this particular matter, that and like some of the larger particular matter. And uh, the one thing that the EPA has rolled back, which was kind of terrible, was that former EPA administrator put sensing monitors on top of US embassies around the world to have worldwide monitoring of PM2.5 particulate matter. So to get an understanding of when 
health conditions were bad. And this was primarily started because of air quality in China. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've lost some of that data, but I think there's still a fight to maintain that data because we the sensors for this exist and they're cheap to put up. So we can have quality measuring of this data. It's just a matter of like, what does it look like for us to protect ourselves? And it means like wearing dust masks for the most part. Yeah, well, here's just one story of a, of a EPA study that turned out to show some pretty significant effects. I will say that I, I, what I walk away with from that story is that we wouldn't know this unless somebody invested in a large, expensive, hard to manage study that looked at this over many years. And I'm a huge fan of those types of studies, but there seem to be rarer and rarer these days in the US. And super, super loyal listeners this is a deep cut. No, I'm a big fan of this. I actually did an episode that essentially centered on the Framingham study, the heart study that's based out of Massachusetts that starting in 1948 enrolled 5,000 people now generally, generationally uh, to examine what the risk factors for heart disease are. And to tell you how seminal that study is generally, it's led to like a thousand papers. But basically, this whole idea that obesity leads to higher incidence of heart disease and that diet and exercise are important for heart disease or the fact that we know that smoking leads to greater incidence of heart disease, that's that study led us to those conclusions. So I want to emphasize how important these big Mm -hmm. studies can be. Um, Well, Right now, the U.S. has struggled and some European countries to do a similar big study that in, uh, that includes microbiome data because everyone wants to see how bacterial influence, especially when it comes to stuff like inflammation, make a difference in terms of our overall health, health outcomes. We're doing this on small scale, but to do it with you know, thousands of people over a long period of time would be unique. Well, this is where China comes in. Since 2012, they have something called the Guangzhou Cohort Study, which has already recruited 33,000 mothers and their babies to be part of the study where they give regular blood samples and their microbiome is is uh, chronicled over time uh, to determine like all sorts of things. Like we can't even predict the kinds of studies that are going to come out of this. In addition, they've recruited another 5,000 grandmothers. So we get this generational effect again to understand how over time changes in diet, changes in behavior can can really affect um, health. And the really interesting part to me is they're also evaluating the mental health of the mothers and the kids as they go through this study Hmm. so that we'll have it maybe an understanding of how some of these biological risk factors impact you know, some of our psychology. Uh, the most one, interesting one, uh, interesting study underway right now, I think there's there's probably a couple, but the one that I think I'm most interested in is understanding the microbiome of babies and they're comparing babies that were born vaginally versus C-section. Mm-hmm. And we have this hint that, my, uh, that there's something about being born vaginally that impacts the baby's overall microbiome that leads to sort of a quote unquote healthier system, especially earlier in life. But we don't know that over a large cohort of people. So to do this over a large percentage of people is really interesting. Yeah, that is really interesting because I feel like, you know, there yeah, there, there do seem to be some studies that, you know, as the baby goes through the birth canal, um, he or she picks up some of the microbiome from the mom, which then, you know, gets ingested and sort of seeds the microbiome for the infant. Um, and that don't picture happen. any of that, by the way. You know, <laughs> yeah, please don't. Uh, it doesn't happen when you do a C-section, but there are some interventions where people are like saying, hey, you know, even in a C-section baby, maybe there's some way of introducing some of this uh, microbiome material. 
But it's a little bit like the kind of breastfeeding studies where, you know, often what you might find is that you have this initial effect, but over time, there are other factors that far outweigh. So, you know, in breastfeeding, for example, by the time a kid gets to be age five, there seems to be no benefit of breastfeeding that trumps Mm -hmm. other factors. But that's why these longitudinal studies are so important because Mm -hmm. they have a big population. They're done over many, many years. So you can control for like, well, maybe your baby's more likely to be sick in that first month, mm-hmm. but generally over time, it sort of evens out and there's not much of a risk factor. I will say, I don't want to, you know, over lionize these studies as being like a cure-all for everything. They're expensive, they're hard to manage, and because they tend to exist within countries which have their own sort of like racial makeup, we tend to overgeneralize the results to populations outside of that. Framingham did this with risk of heart disease for residents in the UK, which generally have a lower incidence of heart disease than their American counterparts. So uh, everything has to be taken with a grain of salt, but I'm excited to see um, China lead the way. Yeah. So um, speaking of babies, what is the best way to get a baby to fall asleep? Uh, Whiskey. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Beyond drugs. Oh, for sure. There's two things. There's either that that baby rocker that vibrates or just put them in the car seat and drive around. Yeah. So a lot of people use the car to put their babies to sleep. It never worked for my kid. Um, but, you know, it works for a lot of parents. And certainly there's something about, you know, vibrating, you know, the the or, or sort of the, that motion. Um, in fact, there's a there's a very expensive crib called the Snoo uh, that does that for you, which, you know, we can talk about that another show because, you know, personally, I have thoughts about it. <laughs> Which are not positive. Um, But in any case, uh, did you ever think that, you know, those kinds of same vibrations might put you to sleep, too? No. Why would that put like I I've driven around in lots of cars that I don't fall asleep. Yeah. And certainly like if I, you know, on a vibrating bed, I'm not really thinking about sleeping. (laughs) But um, apparently uh, in Australia, they did a study uh, where they looked at what simulating a kind of the vibration, the low grade vibration that happens in a, on a two lane highway. And they found that, in fact, within 15 to 30 minutes, uh, their participants in their study started to get really drowsy. And and drowsiness while driving is a really big problem. Um, so, you know, something like 20 percent of, of road fatalities are, are a result of driver fatigue. Um, and, you know, the authors of the study claim that one in five Australians have fallen asleep at the, at the wheel. Um, so this is really dangerous. And the question is, like, what is it about driving that makes you sleepy other than being sleep deprived? Uh, and so it turns out that, that maybe these low frequency vibrations, four to seven hertz, are something that sort of put us into this somnolent state. And they actually looked at heart rate variability uh, as a measure of drowsiness in their subjects. And, uh, and sure enough, they, they, uh, they found that over the course of the test, the drowsiness increased and it peaked at about 60 minutes, um, which is probably, yeah, like when I'm driving, I would say like if I don't have a lot of distraction, like a great podcast or something like that playing, about 60 minutes in, I'm starting to <laughs> wonder and feel a little sleepy. Now I'm wondering what people are doing at the end of our normal podcast. <laughs> Yeah. So if you are driving, uh, please pay attention to the road. And uh, maybe, you know, so one thing they did find is that there are other vibration frequencies that actually keep you more awake. So maybe you need to like maybe those like, you know, how you sometimes if you drive on the side of the road and there's like those whatever they're called, the rumble strips. uh, So apparently those work. does actually wake you up. Um, But if you're just in the study, this is a study that was published uh, in Ergonomics um, Journal. 
You heard it here first, Insomniacs. Take an Uber for 15 minutes and you'll be right asleep. Yeah, and we'll be talking about um, technology in other ways, uh, including driving technology, too, in a kind of very roundabout way uh, on Monday for for our main episode, which will be on the biography of Tesla. Yeah, so see you then and get ready for all things Tesla. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.